I just quickly ask you for our podcast tomorrow, what you made of the show tonight? Fantastic, absolutely brilliant. We thoroughly enjoyed it, didn't we? It was fabulous. Fabulous. Yes. What do you think of the English National Opera coming to Manchester? I think it's a marvellous thing. Yeah, it's what we need. Bring it on. Bring it on, definitely. Hello there, welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill with me, Daryl Morris, and in the Mill's newsroom this week, the Mill's editor, Yoshi Herman. Hello, Yoshi. Hey, Daryl, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing really well, thank you. We've got a lot to get our teeth into today. You may have seen the story in the national press the last couple of days that a coroner has concluded that a two-year-old boy died because of prolonged exposure to mould in social housing in Rochdale. There's been a heck of a reaction to this story. We'll, we'll get to it shortly. And we'll talk opera as well, Yoshi, this week, which I think is becoming your, your new obsession. And I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah, it's the new Piccadilly Gardens, isn't it? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we're, do, we're, doing, we're doing some coverage on it, but also I've just been tweeting about it a lot. And uh, I think it's, um, it's an important issue that's this, this ENO, English National Opera Move, that's not getting quite enough coverage in Manchester itself. Okay, we'll, we'll come to that in a sec, because you went to some opera at the Lowry, didn't you, this week? And spoke to some people there, so we'll um, we'll get your take on that in a moment. Firstly, let's start with a piece that you've been working on for a while, Yoshi, in the Mill Newsroom, but that's had quite a lot of attention this week that calls into question the conduct of the influential restaurant critic Mark Garner. Take us into this story, Yoshi. What do we need to know if you haven't seen it so far? Yeah, so for listeners who don't know, Mark Garner is the founder of a website called Manchester Confidential. Um, there's, there's also a, a similar website in, in Liverpool. I think there's also one in Leeds. The, the company is often referred to as Confidentials. And they do restaurant reviews, they do features, they do a bit of kind of local news coverage. And what happened was, quite recently, Mark Garner did a post on LinkedIn that was really, really unpopular. He posted about a restaurant called Marais, and he basically suggested that because they weren't advertising with Manchester Confidential that they were doing badly and that another nearby restaurant who were advertising were doing really well. You know, a not particularly subtle message. Hey, if you don't advertise with us, you know, you'll be in trouble. You won't get customers. And that got a really big response on Twitter. Murray, the restaurant, they shared it and they said, actually, we're doing absolutely fine. This guy's been harassing us. And there were hundreds of engagements on that tweet. And a couple of people got in touch with us after that tweet and basically said, you should write something about Morgana. And Jack's been working on it for a while now, and it turned into one of our biggest stories yet. And I think it's because a lot of people have heard of Manchester Confidential. Probably a lot of people have have read reviews on that website. Some people will have even bought these vouchers, these restaurant vouchers. And I think what this story did is it gave a bit of a new insight into how this company really works and how these vouchers really work. And... At the centre of the piece was a woman called Unji No, and she runs a restaurant, um, a Korean restaurant in Chalton. And the way she says she was treated by Mark Garner is pretty horrifying. Uh, bullying behaviour, racist terms about her being Korean, trying to kind of strong armour her into using these um, vouchers or allowing confidentials to sell these vouchers. And I think that's why the story did so well, is it put a face and a and a name to this behaviour from Manchester Confidential that's been kind of talked about in Manchester for quite a while. I think it's also worth saying that the mill, at the, at the mill, Yoshi, you reached out to Mark Garner on these allegations 
Yeah, we, we, we did reach out to him. Uh, Jack sent him an email and said, you know, would you like to respond to any of these points? And there were lots and lots of points that they were very serious allegations and he chose not to do so. I mean, he hasn't, he hasn't responded to them. So it was a really, really good story. And I think probably the best thing is, is if um, I get Jack over now and, and, and you can ask Jack a couple of things about the story before we move on. Hi, Jack. Hello, Daryl. Your sort of key source for this story, Unji No, the restaurant owner, as we've been hearing in Manchester. What did it take for her to speak to you about her experience? Well, I suppose Unji, while she was a key source in the end because she went on the record, she wasn't the original key source. The original key source remains off the record, and it was someone who put me in touch with the kind of network of people who would become sources later on, which led me on to Unji, if that makes sense. So someone put me in touch with Unji who had witnessed that meeting that she had with Mark Garner. So I reached out to her, and we spoke briefly um, a couple of times on the phone, but she said she would rather meet up in person to discuss what happened. So then we met up a few times after that. In going on the record, it was kind of, you know, with getting any, not get, well, that's the thing, you don't really get anyone to go on the record. You suggest it and you give a clear idea of everything that that entails and how they'll appear in the story and what that really means. And then you give them time to think about it. A few different sources had thought about going on the record for this story, but only one did. And with Unji, she went and, you know, chatted with a team um, from the Thirsty Korea and they all went out for sushi together and kind of talked through whether or not they wanted to do it and how it might affect the business and what they thought and came to the conclusion that she, um, she should go on the record. Okay. And what sort of responses she had? Yeah, great, but as far as I can tell, I mean, it was never much, <laughs> speak for the story obviously was more and was, is principally about her being able to speak truth to her kind of experience and have that sort of thing in the public realm and say, you know, this happened to me. But at the same time, it's garnered a huge amount of support from local residents and people going, wanting to go and eat at a restaurant, stuff like that, which is a great byproduct to that, I suppose. And on Mark Garner, Jack, you know, if, if people don't know this guy, how influential is he? Um, from what I understand, speaking to people who are much more plugged into this industry than I am, for a time, Mark Garner, from what I understand, was a very influential person. If you speak to people in the industry who've been in this industry for a really long time, they'll remember him as the person who, you know, was approached by national newspapers to give quotes about restaurants in the north of England and all that kind of thing. When, as I talk about in my piece, when um, Anthony Bourdain came to Manchester to speak at the Lowry, it was Mark Garner who was asked to interview him. And obviously, Bourdain is even now you know posthumously but especially at the time it was a hugely influential figure in food and food media globally so to be requested to interview him you know that really speaks to the kind of status that Garner had for a very long time that has changed some would argue dramatically over the past few years for you know multiple reasons much more competition um the move for a lot of food media now has moved completely away from web pages and websites and it exists solely on social media people don't want to click off social media anymore so places like eat manchester will just concentrate all of their coverage on instagram they'll post you know some stuff on the website and maybe they'll link to it but the the bulk of their sort of personal traffic and engagement exists on instagram now and for a website like Manchester Confidential, which started in, you know, the early 2000s, their whole business model is based on people visiting the webpage and looking at ads that are on the webpage. And yeah, that's one of the reasons why his influence has waned. Equally, 
as we talk about in the piece and as many different sources and people in the industry attest to, he has a way of doing business that maybe isn't quite as welcome anymore in the industry. And he equally hasn't sort of taken stock of the fact that Manchester's hospitality industry has become a kind of patchwork of more independent, young, media-savvy owners who don't really need help with marketing anymore. Um, they would much rather just have a boost from somewhere that has a big following on Instagram, which, compared to the others, Confidentials doesn't have anymore. I think they have less than 100,000 uh, followers on Instagram. And I think Eat Manchester and Manchester Finest, between them, have nearly 500,000. So it's uh, one of those things where they just haven't spotted the change quick enough from people that I've spoken to. Okay, very interesting. I thought it was a very, very interesting part of the uh, the article you did. Some brilliant journalism. And you can read Jack's piece at uh, manchestermill.co.uk. That's where you go to subscribe and get that brilliant journalism in your inbox. manchestermill.co.uk. Now, Yoshi, there's another story that we're going to talk about for a third week in a row now, but with good reason. I mean, it has become a little bit of a picket of the gardens, but with good reason, because the debate does rumble on about the English National Opera and a potential move to Manchester. You've been following this story very, very closely and doing some field work, getting out there. You've um, s- some hard journalism by suffering through the opera at the Lowry, Yoshi, this week. Yeah, although I wasn't suffering through it because I really, really enjoyed it. And it was La Traviata. It was at the Lowry, as you say. It was put on by Opera North, which is a really, really good company that are based in Leeds. And they tour around the north um, and they also tour around other cities like Nottingham and that kind of thing. And what I wanted to do was A, to go to this performance and hear what an opera sounds like in the Lowry because you don't get many chances to go to an opera in Greater Manchester. But the other thing is I wanted to speak to the people there because clearly the people who go you know, to that performance, they're the ones who would be enjoying the English National Opera if it was here. They're the ones who'd be going you know, every week or every two weeks or whatever. And you know, it was super interesting to speak to them because you're talking about really passionate people who... Um, one woman I spoke to, you know, she's been going forever because of her dad. And another one, you know, talked about her neighbours who, who, who've been going. And I spoke to a local councillor. So maybe I can play a few of the clips that I got from conversations I had last night. Oh, oh we've been there coming since the Lowry opened here. But before that, the Opera House yeah. to Manchester. How far are we going back with that? Well, I used to go, I've seen this over 30 years ago with my mum. Who's been, who's been passed away for the last 23 years at the, at the I think we saw this at the palace if I'm not mistaken yeah just before lockdown at the palace I saw Madame Butterfly yeah yeah and it was a packed house again but do you think if the English National Opera came up here they'd fill up like they have tonight yeah oh definitely yeah yeah they must think because we're up north we don't we're not cultured, no. We're not cultured. Well, look at the audience here. I know, definitely. And everyone in there tonight, people we just got speaking to, everyone said what an absolutely fabulous chair. Everyone, everyone did. Brilliant. Yeah. What have you made of the idea which has been ubiquitous in the national media that there's no opera-going audience? in Greater Manchester? Well, there is an opera-going audience in Greater Manchester and in the surrounding counties who will come to Manchester. We're at La Traviata now. It looks pretty full to me. Some may have gone out on cheaper tickets, but that's all to the good because it gets new audiences in. I can remember when I was in my 20s and living in a bedsit and some other people living there were students from Newcastle or somewhere and they went to Wagner's Ring and they talked about how many hours they had to sit 
not moving a muscle in the heat of the um, gallery at the Palace Theatre and they were avid opera goers. There's all sorts of people. So Yoshi, what do you think that kind of response tells us about the prospects of this happening? I think it gave me a lot of hope that English National Opera moving to Manchester would have an audience. I mean, you know, this performance at the Lowry on a Tuesday night, which is not a particularly popular night to go out, was at least three quarters full. Um, the the key seats on on the ground level in the stalls they were more, more even more full than that eighty eighty five percent full maybe, and. The enthusiasm that I had speaking to people, I, I think it just shows there is an opera audience. That all this nonsense in the national press that, you know, it's not an opera city, it won't work out here, you won't find the people. I think that's that's been shown to be wider the mark um, but by the kind of people I was chatting to last night and, and the size of the crowd. And that's without all the publicity you'd have around opera coming here, the sustained uh, marketing, the, the newspapers writing about it. You know, and that's without years of building an opera audience. That's kind of just the audience we have from rarely having opera, you know, like four or five times a year or the odd performance from a touring company. So I think it should give us a lot of hope that this can really, really work. Um, and I had an interesting conversation actually with a young opera singer on the bus on the way back because he had seen me doing some interviews. So he turned around and chatted to me on the bus and we were on the top deck. And he basically said... I've only seen negativity about this move. You're the first person who said anything positive about the ENO coming. And he was like, actually, if you spoke to some of my classmates, like they might understand the, the case for it as well. But at the moment, it's everyone's just being negative. Everyone's posting on Instagram. This is terrible, bad news for the ENO. And obviously, in some ways, it is bad news because people will lose their jobs and there will be this big, you know, brutal kind of turnover period where things are changing, transition period. But I think what I took from the my trip to Salford last night, which is pretty close to where we record our podcast, just over the water. Um, what I took from it is that there's an audience there and that there'd be a hell of a lot of enthusiasm um, uh, as well. And no, I think so too. And I think, I think, I also think that you, you know, you, you open it up to an audience that wouldn't necessarily be inclined to go or, or have the opportunity to go, don't you, in, in, in doing that, which I think is, is only a good thing. There's also there's some other important implications, isn't there, of the, the Art Council's funding Yoshi in Greater Manchester. And we've talked about this a little bit before. Where are we up to in terms of sort of Oldham Coliseum's m- money? And also Old Courts in Wigan is worth a conversation, isn't it? Yeah, so two very contrasting bits of news for two cultural organisations on the edges of Greater Manchester in Oldham and in Wigan. The Coliseum in Oldham is a famous old theatre one of the considered one of the oldest um, operating theatres in Britain. And a lot, I think some listeners would have been to Pantos there, been to plays there. It's a really important institution in Oldham, and it's also kind of really a part of Oldham's regeneration. That lost its Arts Council funding for the next three years. So they've got a £1.8 million funding gap, and that is a big, big problem for them. I mean, they're going to have to cut back a lot. They're going to be in some trouble about this. They said they're considering what to do next. On the other side of the ledger, you've got the Old Courts in Wigan, which is a not-for-profit arts venue. They've transformed a a derelict uh, former hotel um, in Wigan into an arts hub. And they got 1.05 million from the Arts Council, which is £350,000 per year for the next three years. And that's to deliver cultural activities um, in Wigan. And that's on top of a big government cultural recovery grant that they got during COVID. So they are now expanding, they're opening new spaces. There's a lot of optimism about that. And it's just, you know, these are just the brutal outcomes and decisions you get with Arts Council funding. It's government money. It's being divvied up by this arm's length body. And there are like, you know, really stark winners and losers, even within Greater Manchester. 
Okay. Some good detail. Really interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that story again, won't we, for sure. Um, another story to consider this week that's been developing the last few days, Yoshi, is, uh, is a really tough one. A coroner has concluded that a two-year-old boy died as a result of severe respiratory condition that was caused by a prolonged exposure to mould at social housing in Rochdale. This is a terrible, terrible case of Aqua Bishak, who is a two-year-old boy who's... I mean, it's just devastating this, isn't it, really, Yoshi? Where do we begin? Well, I think you have to start with the basic facts because that's basically what we know from this coroner. So Awab Ishak, he was born in the UK to Sudanese parents. Um, his dad, Faisal, came from Sudan um, in 2016 and his mother, Aisha, she came a year later. And very soon after they were started living here in Rochdale, they reported this mould in the flat. The flat that was rented from housing association called Rochdale Borough Wide Housing, which is the body, it's a huge body in Rochdale, which controls most of the former kind of social housing stock. So, you know, as you'll know, a lot of social housing isn't run by the council anymore. It's run by these housing associations. And the following year, so 2018, um, Awab was born. He was born prematurely, but according to the BBC reporting on this, there were no concerns from any health professionals about, about him, about his health, despite that. Things went wrong when he was taken to Rochdale Urgent Care in December of that year. Uh, he suffered shortness of breath, um, and he was out of hospital, and then, he, and then he died not long after that. So this case... It it highlights some really, really shocking housing conditions. The coroner, Joanne Kersley, basically asked the question, how in the UK in 2020 does a two-year-old child die as a result of exposure to mould? That was a quote from her. Uh, That is obviously the question, and I think the answers are probably like multifold and and probably require a little bit more introspection. Yeah, for sure. Um, We've we've also heard from Michael Gove, I think, today, haven't we, who's the... I think he's technically the housing minister as part of his brief and, and and he's obviously been commenting on this yoshi it feels like one of those things that's gonna f- focus quite a lot of minds i think yeah so the i i think the government is basically calling in the the head of rochdale borough-wide housing to explain what happened here but if you've been watching itv's reporting on conditions in social housing in i think they started in croydon but they've they've done it in, in various council areas you'll know that this kind of problem it's flats with mould, flats poorly ventilated, leaking in some way, and situations where families were living in terrible conditions and not being able to get any response or any adequate response out of the um, out of the housing association or, or out of the council. That is that is unfortunately, sadly, a really um, common issue. It's, this is not the first time it's happened. It's just that it's very stark to see a coroner blame those conditions for the death of a of of a two-year-old okay and uh, also this week yoshi we've been following this uh, new york times investigation that's highlighted what it describes as major issues with the use of the joint enterprise law again you know eyes beyond manchester trained on our city and some of the stuff that's going on here the paper found that black defendants were three times as likely to be prosecuted under these controversial joint and enterprise laws compared to white defendants i wonder if we start by because this is something again that you've been following for a while on the mail and we talked about this a couple of months back uh, especially around this case from moss side that gained some national attention 
Let's go back to the beginning on this one and what a joint enterprise law actually is. So joint enterprise laws, which have been controversial for a while, there are a set of principles um, which allow prosecutors to charge people for a crime, even if they took no part in the final act. I think whenever people hear about joint enterprise for the first time, they find it very surprising. They find the idea that you can be prosecuted for murder, even if you didn't wield a knife or, or pull the trigger. They find that kind of counterintuitive. I mean, I actually started writing about this kind of issue ages ago. I wrote a piece for the Independent magazine in 2015 about the murder of a, a boy called Sophie and Belmwaden in Victoria Station in London. And that was a huge prosecution and it was a big joint enterprise prosecution. And essentially, there were pe- members of the group who were prosecuted for killing um, Sofian, who were not around his body when the, when the final um, you know, murder took place, the, the final stabbings took place. They could have been metres away, they could have been hundreds of metres away, and they were still charged with murder. And I think the funny thing is, or not the funny thing, but the kind of thing that made me think about this the other day was the expert, the lawyer who I quoted in that story um, to saying how controversial these laws are was Keir Starmer. It was before he was a Labour MP. I think it must have been between when he was at the CPS and when he became a Labour MP. He's obviously now Sir Keir Starmer. He's the, you know, he's the he's the leader of the Labour Party and, you know, the presumed next Prime Minister. So there might be, you know, a, a, a I think people thought that these laws were going to be used less and less after a Supreme Court, ju- court judgment a few years ago. But maybe with a Labour government, you will actually see legislation around this. But, um, you know, that's that's the background on, on, on joint enterprise. And so take us to the New York Times story as well, then. They have focused on that case in Mossad, uh, haven't they? What have, what have they been saying in their investigation? So they've had two stories out this week. Let's talk about the first one. The story centers around um, a man called Romaro West, who is a 16-year-old who died after being stabbed in the leg in Mossad last September. And the, the paper, the newspaper, really focuses on one of the the four men who is found guilty of West murder, who is a guy called Giovanni Lawrence, who was sentenced to 21 years in prison. And he wasn't at the um, the scene of the crime. Um, he never t- touched the knife. Uh, there wasn't a identifiable motive for him to have committed it. He didn't have a history of violence, and no one sort of witnessed him at the scene. He was just part of a car chase that sort of precipitated the murder. So this is the kind of case that really makes a lot of observers think hang on how have we created a law that acts as like this sort of dragnet over people and there's another new york times um piece that 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 actually deals with the case you might remember we talked about which isn't joint enterprise but it is uh it relates to um conspiracy charges and, and 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 again a lot of young black men being dragged into prosecutions where frankly it's a little bit difficult to understand how they've been charged so i really recommend that people um read those and we've we've linked to both of those new york times stories in our in our newsletters this week and, and obviously we're talking now about the new york times doing an investigation we're talking we talked about uh, lucy powell the mp i think she'd raised the issue with the uh, justice secretary at the time who i think was dominic robb at the time and and you know it feels like there is a, a momentum behind really seriously questioning this law do you feel yoshi that there is uh, you know absolutely having followed it for of, over a number of years do you feel the the, the, the sort of dial is moving on it it does feel like that, but I remember thinking that this might, that this was kind of over. It was a few years ago when the when the Supreme Court 
basically they looked at how courts and judges had been interpreting joint enterprise laws and they basically decided that they had been misinterpreted by some judges and therefore that people shouldn't have had joint enterprise laws dragging them into these prosecutions. And I think a lot of people who had been following this thought, okay, right, that's the end of that then, you're not going to have this. But what the New York Times reporting shows is that actually since then, the use of joint enterprise has increased. And as you say, it disproportionately affects um, young black men. I think that, I think that there's a sort of media angle here as well, which is that like it's interesting that it's taken the New York Times to turn up and, and say this. I mean, they've got a decent operation in the UK. They've got, a, I don't know how many reporters, but they've definitely got a sort of 10 or 20 reporters in the UK. So I'm not totally surprised that it's them, but it, you know, it shows just how strong they are as a media organization and how weak British media has become that it has taken an overseas news organization to come along and to really give us a, a, a clear picture of, of, of this kind of trend, which takes a hell of a lot of reporting. Like, we, we, we knew that New York Times was working on this because we'd been told about New York Times reporters being in certain cases that we were looking at. Um, and it's great that they have done it because it shines a light on an important legal area. Okay, for sure it does. Yoshi, a couple of other quick bits and bobs to get into this week. We'll talk about NHS waiting times in a minute and a very handy tool, actually, that's uh, that's on another media website that uh, helps you understand, sort of get, gives you some detail on where the waiting times are the worst. Can we start on accents first? One of my favourite subjects, somebody from the north who's got an accent, who works in kind of national media, but is also, my, my accent's like softening a bit and it's kind of all over the place. I find this really, really interesting. Why have accents been in the news the last couple of days? Yeah, I mean, I think any listener who uh, who knows this podcast will know that I do not have any of the Mank accents. Um, but this is a, a research project from MMU that's been going for a few years. And they've been speaking to loads of people, I think it's 300 people from the region, to try and work out sort of the different accents that ex- still exist. Um, and I liked their uh, classification. They have an accent which they call... Mank, which is situated mostly in the city of Manchester, they had um, an accent which they'd refer to as posh, which is like South Manchester, Trafford, Stockport. You know, still a, still a Greater Manchester accent, but what they call posh. And then they had an accent which mainly was sort of predominant in Barry Bolton, Rochdale, Oldham, which they re- refer to as Lancashire. Um, and then the the final one was the sort of more of a Wigan one, which I think is a, the researchers were basically saying that there's a more distinctive dialect in, in particular in the, in the sort of um, Wigan area. But what they're doing with this is they are creating a kind of um, a record, an online record, so people can like listen into the the different accents and. Um, and try and work out, I guess, which one they're closest to, but also just see how different people speak across Greater Manchester. It seems like a really interesting uh, project. Has it sort of like deciphered anything in terms of kind of, uh, I mean, kind of like class or, uh, you know, social standing, etc.? Is that is that what it's trying to determine? I don't know if it's so much about that, but I think it's just, it's trying to map how people speak in different areas. And I think if people want to know more about this, we've actually got a piece coming out on the mill, which you'll be able to find on our website But by the time you listen to this or in your inbox, um, where Jack's written about this in more depth. So I'm going to defer to him and let him explain because um, he's been speaking to the researcher. Okay, well, always up for accent chat uh, over here, for sure. It's my Piccadilly Gardens, my opera. 
<laughs> Saxon chat. Um, elsewhere, Yoshi, another serious story. A Lancashire police officer has been charged this week with attempted murder after a woman was found injured at a hotel on Brook Street in the city centre. What more do we know about this? To be honest, we don't know that much about it, um, other than a man, 27-year-old, who is, yeah, as you say, a Lancashire police officer. He's been remanded. He's, he's appeared at Manchester Magistrates. Um, the woman involved in this is taken to hospital. Um, is in a stable condition apparently I don't know much else about it but it really struck me like a, a Lancashire police officer charged with attempted murder in Manchester city centre we'll just have to keep an eye on it I think Okay, and Trafford has got the longest NHS waiting times in the UK, uh, Yoshi, officially, according to the New Statesman's new tool on its website that sort of tracks waiting lists by postcode. Is that right? Yeah, and I think this will be familiar to people. Like We had a story recently about um, Sophie writing about a really, really long wait at, a- at A&E. This is a different aspect to the NHS problem, isn't it? It's waiting lists. The maximum waiting time for non-urgent treatments is, is 18 weeks and the nhs basically has a target that says no more than eight percent of patients should wait no uh, you know longer than that that 18 weeks and in trafford according to this data 57 percent of patients are missing that target they're, they're having to wait longer than 18 weeks so um yeah it's just a it, it's a little insight into just how bad um things are currently in the nhs yeah for sure and a handy tool though on the on the new sets website um and finally, for this week, Yoshi, Ashton United have managed to get themselves in the news this week. This is a cracking bit of PR, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> why? What have they done? They have offered to take um, Erling Haaland, who, as, as everyone knows, is the, currently the, the hottest striker in Europe and banging in a lot of goals for City. Because I think Norway and not the World Cup, is that right? They have said, we'll take him on loan to keep him fit. Um, while the World Cup is going on, which, you know, I think City should actually go for it. I uh, don't know if it's uh, allowed within the rules to drop down that many divisions. What division would they be in? They'd be like, they'd be down in the sort of Northern Premier, something like that, wouldn't they? Yeah, I think they're in the, yeah, sort of non-league or whatever they call it, don't they? The, the uh, Yeah, something like that. Um, I'm, all, I'm all bored. I was wondering if Pep Guardiola fancied a little bit of coaching, uh, keeping keeping himself, keeping his brain warm over at Bolton Wanderers for a couple of weeks. And of course, Cristiano Ronaldo is uh, has very much come available, hasn't he? Uh, so uh, so maybe <laughs> we could get him signed up. We should get them. We should get them both playing for Ashton. Actually, that would be a good uh, forward um, line, Harling and Ronaldo. <laughs> what a team uh, okay hats off to Washington United some very very funny stuff there um, okay what else is going on Yoshi take us into the Mill newsroom and uh, and give us an insight into some of the stories that you're working on well I think something we're working on for the weekend um, is a really interesting story about an Iranian young woman who lives in Manchester of, of Iranian she's Iranian originally and, and she's got a really interesting story about going back to Iran a bad experience she had with that so that's coming out this weekend um, and then actually what we're starting to do is we're starting to plan what are we going to run over the Christmas period because um, the staff are going to we're all going to have a bit of a, a bit of a time off over the Christmas period with a bit less publishing so we're kind of starting to work on what those stories are going to be about and I think we're we're particularly working on a story about strange ways. Um, we'd really like to do a follow-up to the, the strange ways piece we did recently. So if any listeners have got any contacts there or, or any experience there or people who've spent time at strange ways, it would be great if you get in touch with uh, jack at manchestermail.co.uk because that's something we'd like to run over the Christmas break. 
Great, very nice. And what about what's going on around Grace Manchester this weekend? We always like to give you some things to do uh, out and about, don't we? What's on your radar for that, Gushy? I think the radar for me, so I'm actually going to Newcastle for a, a journalism like event where I'm speaking at um, a press association event. So I won't be here in the, in the city on the weekend, but I think the thing that I would have done if I had been around was to go to the Royal Exchange for the last night of um, Let the Right One In, which is this well-reviewed show that they've been doing um, through the month. Um, it's last uh, show are on Friday and Saturday night um, and I think there are still tickets left I'm pretty sure there are so that'd be that'd be a good recommendation I think lovely very nice and the World Cup starts this weekend of course uh, if you've got the appetite for it Mayfield Depot are doing uh, a bit of a host in all the England games kind of thing I don't think obviously with, with the sort of nature of it time and the, the, the season that we're in I don't think we're going to see those kind of mass seas of people in um, in public spaces throwing beer up in the air and all that sort of stuff but Mayfield Depot have got an indoor big screen that you can watch it on so if you're looking to watch the football with some company although it's the first game for England is one o'clock on Monday afternoon against Iran so it's not singing at me that one I'm going to be absolutely honest with you but Mayfield Depot might be uh, a good place to head to and Manchester's Christmas markets are up and running as well we've seen lots of stuff on social media in the last couple of days the start of Manchester's Christmas market so that's definitely worth and you know cost of living crisis and you know uh, etc people were very concerned in, and it does look very costly people were concerned about crowds it's been absolutely rammed uh, the last week so clearly an appetite for it Manchester's Christmas market's worth checking out that's it from us for this week thank you for signing up as well by the way if you've joined up as a mill member you are powering the brilliant journalism that you find in the mill and you can continue to do that manchestermill.co.uk slash subscribe if you haven't already i cannot recommend it enough it's the kind of it's the kind of thing that that, that powers the engine uh, of the mill and yoshi's work manchestermill.co.uk slash subscribe we're back in your podcast feed same time next week yoshi for now thank you thank you